Luke 22, 7-23 Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which a Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. And then the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on I will not drink from the fruit of the vine, until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Well, good morning and welcome to the weekend services here at Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my pleasure to spend a little time with you this weekend. I've been excited about this, not only because I get to be with you, but also we're starting this new sermon series, Come and See. I'm excited for you to hear from the Gospel of Luke, whether you're in East Hall or here in the sanctuary or watching online. We've been praying for this series as a staff. We've been praying for what God's going to do. In fact, I'm so excited about what God's going to do that if you're watching this online, I would love to ask you to like, share, retweet, post, whatever social media platform you're on. Help us to get the message out. Here's why. We really believe over the next 10 weeks, as we slow down and look at the 10, last 10 scenes of the life of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke, that God is going to do amazing things in our church. And we're praying specifically that people really will come and see. I don't know you, I don't know your story or, or where you come from or what your experience with the church or the Bible or with God is. But what I'm hoping is that if you're on the fence about really giving your life to Jesus, if you're on the fence about saying I'm all in with Jesus, that these 10 weeks will help you to come and to see. In fact, that's why we have the baptistry out here, down front in the sanctuary, and also out over in East Hall. And the reason for that is simply this. On April 25th, the last week of this sermon series, we are going to be baptizing. And we are praying already that God would do something amazing, that so many people who are on the fence about Jesus would see April 25th as the moment in which they would say, Amen. And you got 10 weeks to take the time to get there. We are, by the way, going to have three baptism classes between now 
and then you can sign up if you want more information about them in the Next Steps area. Or if you're here in the sanctuary or over in East Hall, there's a QR code on the back of the pew in front of you, on the chairs in front of you in East Hall, and we're even gonna share it online. You can put your phone in camera mode, scan that, and sign up for baptism class right there where you are. You don't even have to go to the Next Steps area if you're in a hurry, so feel free to do that. Exciting, exciting things that we are asking God to do, not just over the next 10 weeks, but today, as we look at Luke chapter 22, verses seven through 23. So if you have a Bible, I would love to ask you to go ahead and pull it out, turn to Luke 22, turn on your phone, scroll to Luke 22, as we look at the passage that was just so beautifully read. And as we do that, I want to give you three points that I'm gonna use to walk through this passage and to help us discover what it is that we're to learn about Jesus today. And those three points are simply this. I wanna show you what Jesus knew, what Jesus knew, why it matters, and what it means for you. What Jesus knew, why it matters, and what it means for you. All right, let's start with the first one. What Jesus knew. One of the really cool things about the passage of scripture we're studying today is it shows us just how clearly and concretely Jesus knew the, the circumstances that he was walking into. This is the last meal he's gonna eat with his disciples before he is arrested and put on trial, beaten, mocked, spit upon, killed. And what is amazing is he knows that. Over and over again in this passage, he is going to show us that he knows what he is walking into. Like for example, he's gonna say, this is the last meal I'm going to eat before I suffer. I mean, he, he, he knows not only that suffering is coming, but that, that this is the last food he's gonna get. He'll, he says things like, I'm not gonna drink wine again until the kingdom of God is fulfilled. He knows this is the last glass of wine he's gonna have. He, he knows he's going to suffer and he knows that his suffering will mean his body will be broken and his blood will be shed. He, he also knows that one of the guys sitting at the table with him is going to be the one who betrays him. Time and time again in this passage, Luke wants us to know that Jesus knows what's coming. And, and one of the coolest ways Luke does that is he shows us what Jesus knew about how to set up for the meal they were going to share together. He, 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 at this time in Jesus's life, it is pretty toxic for him to be in the city. People are looking to kill him. In fact, when he said they were gonna go to Jerusalem, his disciples said, ah, we don't know, it doesn't seem like a good idea. They're, they're, they're gonna kill you if you go. It, it is not a popular time to be Jesus or to be around Jesus. But he sends two disciples into the city and he tells them, here's how it's gonna go. When you see a man carrying a, a jar of water, not a basket of bread or you know, a thermos, or when you see a man carrying a jar of water, go up to that man and say, hey, the teacher you know, needs your place. That guy will take you to a house. Then when you get there, they will take you to the upper room of a house. It's gonna be furnished and set up and ready for us. That's the room that we're going to use. It's an incredible amount of detail. Jesus understands to the very minutest detail 
exactly what God has prepared for him, and he shares that with the disciples. You know, it could be easy when you're familiar with the Bible to blow through something like that, but don't. Slow down and say, why is it important that I know that Jesus knew all the details of where they were gonna eat the meal? Well, here's why. Here's why. The Bible tells us time and time again that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's the God man. 100% God and 100% man. Now here's what that means. In just a little bit, Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. He's gonna be mocked. He's gonna be spit upon. He's going to bleed and he's going to die. He's gonna do all those things because he is a man. He is going to be beaten. He's going to bleed. He's going to die, but he is not going to be surprised. That's because he's God. You can't surprise God. He knows what he's walking into. He knows everything that's coming for him. He knows it will involve suffering. He knows it will involve pain. He knows even the minutest details. Jesus knows everything. I'll say, okay, big deal. Why does that matter? Well, that's my second point. Why why it matters. Why does it matter that Jesus knew? Well, here's the easy answer to that. Jesus knowing what's coming for him is the difference between tragedy and intentionality. It's the difference between tragedy and intentionality. Now, here, here's what I mean by that. You know, there have been a lot of famous people who have been killed throughout human history, shockingly. There have been leaders who have been assassinated, leaders of movements, leaders of governments. We think of Abraham Lincoln, who's going to the theater and thinks he's having a night out at the theater and yet is murdered. We think of JFK riding in a car in a parade, thinking he's just celebrating and he's going to be taken. And the reason why those things affect us so much beyond just, of course, the obvious of them being awful and tragic and, and evil is that they catch us by surprise. That morning, Abraham Lincoln did not know he was going to die. That, that afternoon, JFK did not know I'm going to die. And yet they did. There were tragic deaths. But Jesus, his story is not like that. He is not tragically assassinated. He doesn't walk into a trap unawares. He sets his face towards what is coming for him. This is really important, especially if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, because it would be so easy to put Jesus in the same category as other world leaders, other religious leaders who were brutally and tragically murdered and to say, oh, Jesus, you were taken from us too soon. You poor guy, if only you had known. But Jesus won't let us do that. He knows every detail. He knows what's in the man's jar. He knows the house. He knows the room. He knows the furnishings. He knows who will betray him. He knows when he will eat last and drink last. He knows all of that because he's God. So what does it mean that Jesus knew? Well, it means there are only two ways to understand Jesus' death. The first way is that perhaps maybe Jesus was suicidal. 
that Jesus knew he was going to die and he wanted to die, that the pressure had gotten to him, that the stress of being Jesus had just become too much and he had just decided that it was time for his life and his ministry to be over. That would be a plausible interpretation except for a couple of things. Number one, there's no indication of that here. He doesn't come off as a man who is in despair or despondent or, or dealing with depression. He doesn't come off as a man who's struggling or, or, or given up. In fact, he will even say things like, I will not drink wine again until this happens, meaning he plans on drinking wine again. This is not final in the way it would be if you were going to take your life. So what's the other possible interpretation? Well, the other possible one is that Jesus knows he's going to die and he believes there is a good reason for that. That behind his death is meaning and purpose. This is the difference, by the way, when you think of something like a tragic house fire in a family that is caught in the fire and, and that is awful and horrific and tragic, but it's not the same thing as the first responder who shows up to the fire and runs into the building. When she does that, she's saying, I know I am facing death, but this family is worth it. There's intentionality there. There's purpose there. That is what's going on here with Jesus. He knows what's coming down to the last detail, but it's okay with him because he understands there is meaning and purpose and reason behind it. In fact, he gives us two hints here in the passage that that is the case. In verse 20, he says, this cup, this is my blood. It, it represents a new covenant. That's a really important word. Kind of hold on to that. A new covenant. In verse 16, he says, you know, I'm not going to eat or drink again until the kingdom is fulfilled. That word kingdom is really important. Covenant and kingdom. Those are really important words in the Bible. And let me unpack them a little bit for you. The word covenant in the Bible typically is referring to a promise that God has made, okay? A really big promise that God has made and a sign that he's given that that promise is going to be kept. So for example, when God floods the earth and saves the family of Noah, when Noah's family gets off the boat, God makes a covenant with them. He promises them never to flood the earth again, and he gives them a sign, and that sign is a rainbow in the sky. And God says, that sign is the proof that I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to keep my covenant. A little later, God will make a promise to a man named Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and he'll tell them, I'm gonna make you into a great family. Even though you're, you're older and even though you haven't been able to have children, I'm gonna make your family into this great big family that will bless the world. And the, and the sign that I'm going to do that is your son, Isaac. A little bit later, God will make a promise to the Israelites that he's gonna take them to the promised land and he will give them sign after sign, including the 10 commandments or, or manna from heaven or water from a rock. The Bible is the story of a promise-making God who loves to give signs that he's about to make a promise and that he intends to keep it, covenants. So when Jesus says, I know what's waiting for me. I know I'm gonna suffer. I know I'm gonna die, but it's okay because my blood is a, 
covenant. What he says is my death is the sign of a promise that God is making. God is doing something. God is going to make a promise. And the way you know that God is going to make a promise and keep that promise is I'm going to die. I am the rainbow. I am Isaac. I am the bread from heaven. I am the sign that God is going to make a promise. You go, well, what, what promise is that? Well, he tells us when he uses the word kingdom. And kingdom in the Bible is a word that often refers to the idea that what God really wants is to gather a people for himself and to live with them in his kingdom. That what God really wants is people who he can love and who love him that he can live with and be with as their king. So what Jesus is saying is, listen, I don't just know what's in that guy's jar and I don't just know where he lives and that there's an upper room that's furnished and I don't just know that I'm gonna suffer and I don't just know that one of you is gonna betray me and that I'm gonna die. I know that the reason for all of those things is because God is getting ready to make a really big promise. And that promise is that you can be his people, that he will love you and you will love him and he will be with you forever. And I am the sign that God will keep that promise. I think, well, that, you know, that, that sounds cool. What does that have to do with me? Well, that leads me to my third point, which is to say, here's why, or here's what that means for you. Jesus says here in the passage, I'm not going to eat or drink again until God's plan is fulfilled, until the kingdom is fulfilled. He says, this is the last time I'm gonna drink wine until the kingdom is fulfilled. Now, I believe there he is referencing something that happens in the book of Revelation. Now, I don't know if you're, how familiar you are with the Bible, how familiar you are or anyone can be with the book of Revelation, but it comes at the very end of the Bible. And it is a book in large part about how God is going to bring human history to its final and climactic conclusion. And, and at the climax of the book comes about Revelation chapter 19. And, and here's why it's a climax, because in that chapter, God is going to send his army and he's gonna do battle against all of his enemies. And you know, when you go to war against God, there's one inevitable outcome, okay? You lose. So spoiler alert, if you haven't read the book, they lose, okay? God wipes all of his enemies out. He sets everything right. He brings justice to every single wrong that has ever been done. He, he just, in one fell swoop, whoosh, wipes out his enemies. Now before that, right before that, is this really interesting thing the Bible calls the marriage supper of the lamb. Right before the battle, Right before the scene is this great big feast in which God's people, not his enemies, which he's getting ready to wipe out, but his friends sit down with God and eat and drink with him. It's a celebration. It's a feast. It's a party. It's the marriage supper of the lamb. It's where God's friends are before God's enemies face his judgment. Now, why is it called the marriage supper of the lamb? Well, to understand that, we need to understand the meal that Jesus is eating in this passage with his disciples. It isn't just any meal. It's a meal called the Passover. And again, I, I don't want to assume you have any 
understanding of the Old Testament or you've read it or you remember it, but if you'll indulge me, let me give you a quick background of this meal called the Passover. In the book of Exodus, God's people, the Israelites, have been enslaved by Egypt. And for 400 years, they've cried out to God saying, rescue us, free us, get us out of slavery. And after 400 years, God hears them and he sends a rescuer named Moses. And when Moses shows up to Egypt, which is the most powerful country in the world at this time, and he he goes to Pharaoh, who's the most powerful leader in the most powerful country of the world at this time, and he says to Pharaoh, you need to let Israel go. You need to stop having them as your slaves. And Pharaoh laughs and says, no, I'm not going to do that. After all, Egypt, Egyptians believe that Pharaoh wasn't just their king, he was God. So when Moses shows up and says, God wants you to let his people go, Pharaoh must have been thinking, I don't remember saying that, so I'm not going to do that. So God works through Moses to bring about a series of signs. Does this sound familiar, by the way? God has promised Israel, I'm gonna rescue you. That's a covenant. And he sends signs, and these signs are called plagues. And they're basically a way of Moses showing Pharaoh he's not God. Okay, he does a lot of really nasty things. You can read about it in the book of Exodus. And, you know, water turns to blood, and there's bugs and frogs and all these kinds of weird things. And all of it is is God saying to Pharaoh, I'm God, you're not God. Saying to Israel, I'm God, he's not God. And saying, I told you I would get you out. But Pharaoh continues to say, no, 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 no. Until finally, at the very end, Moses says to him, I only have one sign left. And it's a bad one, Pharaoh. Because you won't listen to God and because you have enslaved a people group, tonight God is going to visit his judgment on Egypt and the firstborn child of every family will die. But because God is gracious and because God doesn't want enemies, he wants friends. Anyone who takes the blood of a lamb, anyone who sacrifices a lamb, anyone who kills a lamb instead of letting their firstborn child be killed, anyone who does that can take that lamb's blood and put it on the door. And when God passes through Egypt, any house on which the blood of the lamb is, God will say, that is not an enemy, that is a friend. And he will pass over their house. And so God says, judgment is coming. You decide, either the lamb dies or the firstborn dies. It's up to you. And so everyone makes their choice and God sweeps through Egypt and all the homes that rejected his grace, the child dies. But in all the homes where the blood of the lamb is on the door, the children are spared. Pharaoh relents, he gives in. God's people are saved by the blood of a lamb. Why then? In the book of Revelation is the marriage supper the meal that God shares with his friends right before his judgment sweeps through. Why is it called the marriage supper of the lamb? Well, Jesus is telling us. 
Because just as God made an old promise to rescue Israel from slavery and kept it through the blood of a lamb, God has made a new promise, a new covenant, that his judgment is coming, but there is a way of escape that everyone who looks to Jesus, everyone who says, Jesus lived for me, Jesus lived a sinless life for me. Jesus died for me. His body was broken. His blood was shed. He went to the cross for me. He died for me. Jesus says, everyone who does that will no longer be seen by God as an enemy, but as a friend. You see, in the book of Revelation, when God's final judgment comes sweeping through, the dividing line of who gets judged and who gets rescued is not how much money you give. It's not how many good things you do. It's not how many times you went to church, where you were born, where you volunteered. The dividing line is whether or not You let the Lamb's blood speak for you. You see, Jesus in this passage is saying, I want you to know that I know what's coming for me. I know to the very last detail. I know the man with the jar and the house with the room. And I know Judas is going to betray me. I know my body's going to be broken. I know my blood's going to be shed. I know all of that, but it's worth it to me. Because the only way you are going to be at the feast and not on the battlefield is if I die for you. See, Jesus was not a tragic figure. Jesus was the Son of God who loved you enough to know that death was coming and to step into it anyway. Because you were worth it for him. That's why it matters that you know he knew. That's why it matters that you know he knew the details. He wants you to know. They didn't catch me. They didn't sneak up on me. They didn't surprise me. They didn't assassinate me. I knew the judgment of God was coming. I knew the battlefield was coming. I knew that you were an enemy of God. And then if somebody didn't do something, he would wipe you out. I knew that. So I came to live and die in your place in order that as you grab hold of me, you might not be an enemy of God, but a friend. That's why he says, by the way, I'm not gonna drink wine again until the kingdom is fulfilled. He, he knows he's gonna die, but he knows he's not gonna stay dead. I don't know about you, if you've been to a lot of funerals, but in the funerals, we don't typically put a bottle of wine in the casket and say, enjoy. It would be wasted. Jesus knows that dead men don't drink wine. He knows he's going to get back up. This death is not about his defeat. This death is about rescuing us from ours. That's what this is about. But I don't want you to miss this. Boy, it's so easy to miss it. There are two ways to miss it. So let me warn you against them in conclusion. One way is to say, this just feels so unnecessary. What? Jesus didn't have to die for it. God doesn't have enemies. He's God. Everyone's his friend. He loves everyone. I'm a good person. I do good things. God, God likes me. But you see, Jesus walks to death because you're wrong. God does have enemies. 
We have broken God's world. Justice is required. That's why it's called the marriage supper of the lamb, not the marriage supper of the largest donors. The marriage supper of the people who stayed married. The marriage supper of the good parents. The marriage supper of the good citizens. It's called the marriage supper of the lamb because the only dividing line between enemies and friends is the blood of Jesus. But in order to pick it up, you got to put your own righteousness down. It will not save you. But there's another way to miss this. And oh, if this is you, you've been on my heart this week. I want you to hear this. Another way to miss this is to say, maybe he did willingly die. Maybe he even did it because he wanted some people to be friends of God, but not, not me. I don't have any problem believing God has enemies. I don't have any problem believing I'm one of them. There is no way that Jesus would do this for me. There's no way, had he known, that he would have done this for me. And yet, oh, I don't want you to miss this. Who is he sharing the meal with? When he looks across the table and he says, this is my body broken and this is my blood shed for you. When he says, I'm doing this so that the next time we eat and drink together, it will be at the marriage supper of the lamb. I'm doing this so that you would be rescued. He is speaking to a room he knows in mere hours. will abandon him. will deny him. will turn their backs on him. You see, he believes they're worth it, even though he sees their future sin. And you know, when he says this, he sees yours too. If he can see theirs, if he can see what they will do, if he can see what they will become, and he can still offer them grace, then why would you think he couldn't see who you would be and what you would do? and not make the same offer to you. Friends, you don't have to be an enemy of God anymore. All you have to do is grab hold of the lamb, the one who lived in your place and died in your place and rose from the dead. And by the way, this is what it means to be baptized, to say, this is my story. I was an enemy of God. I deserved to die. But the lamb came and lived in my place. He died. He took God's anger. He faced God on the battlefield. He was destroyed in order that when he rose from the dead, I might become a friend of God in him so that just as he died and rose from the dead, so also I will die and be buried and I Two will rise. Jesus knew everything. You could beat him. You could hit him. You could hurt him. You could kill him. You couldn't surprise him. But he did it anyway because he loved you that much. Let me pray for us. Father God, what an amazing thing. Even spending 20, 30 minutes talking about it, there's still so, more that, so much more that we could say. It's so deep, it's so rich, it's so powerful, your love for us. 
Holy Spirit, would you take it from the conceptual and the theoretical and the theological and make it very practical and real for us in this very moment in order that we might see and celebrate the beauty of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.